Well, good morning, church. Uh, it is good to be with you. Growing up uh, in a preacher's home as a preacher's kid meant a lot of different things, but one of the things that definitely meant was that I attended way more weddings than any of my friends did. Uh, there were lots of weekends where my, my family had enough going on that my dad ended up telling me, son, I know it may not be your favorite thing to do in the world, but you're going to go to this wedding with me. And I always really wanted to know one thing, is there going to be steak? Because I didn't really care about the rest of it. I just knew, you know, if there was going to be a reception and I was going to have to be there for a while, what was I going to get a good meal? And even if it was, you know, chicken or something, I just wanted to know, was there going to be a sit-down meal or was I going to be fighting the other, well, other, I can't say other, the old men at a reception where all we're going to have is cake, and then, you know, I'm going to be trying to get as, as many handfuls of pretzels and mixed nuts as I can get, waiting for that cake, and it, it never comes when it's supposed to come, right? You're always having to wait longer than you expect. And I had more older men give me stern lectures about sharing with everyone else at those kind of receptions uh, than I care to remember. And it was mainly because I was just faster than they were at getting to those, those bowls of, of nuts and pretzels. And, and it was annoying to them. And I understand that now that I'm kind of an old man myself. But uh, I, I always wanted to know, was there going to be a sit-down meal or not? And one of the best things about having a sit-down meal at a wedding when my dad was the preacher was he always had too much going on to actually make sure I ate any of the vegetables. And so, you know, I basically found my way of working to make sure that if I was going to be stuck at a boring party for grown-ups, at least, at least I was going to eat pretty well. No matter how it went, though, you, you basically know you're in for three to four hours, uh, and then you're going to be free. Well, we're going, going to read a story this morning together about a wedding reception that takes place in a small country town called Cana. Jesus and his disciples were invited to be there along with pretty much everybody else in the town. And, and we're not talking about a wedding celebration that's going to last somewhere around three to four hours. We're, we're actually talking about a wedding party that's going to last something in the neighborhood of three to four days. These wedding celebrations in first century Roman Empire and especially in the Jewish community, they... They were not something that you just kind of gave one afternoon to. They, they were this chance for the whole town to come together and, and partake in the hope and the joy that, that's always in the air around a wedding, right? They, they didn't want to rush past that moment. And so we're going to read that story together now. If you've got your Bible, turn to John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. My dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. I love, I love that whole interaction. Mom, why are you bothering me with this? And she doesn't even respond to him. She just tells everyone, he's going to do something great. Just do what he tells you to do. 
Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the the master of the banquet. And they did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples' faith in him deepened. After this, he went out to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. Okay, so so this story of Jesus has to be one of the most familiar stories from the Bible to To the vast majority of people. And I'm not just talking about familiar to people in church. I mean familiar to everyone everywhere. You you don't have to be in church to hear somebody say, when they're talking about some kind of radical transformation, it was like turning water into wine. And so for many of us in the the building this morning, for many of us online who are watching, we may feel like, look, I've been there, done that with this story. I know what it's about. And I'll admit that for a lot of us, it really is familiar in a way that might almost feel like, what, what's the point here in us talking about this? But I, I want to encourage you this morning, and I want to invite you to consider the fact that, that as is always true in Scripture, it doesn't matter how familiar a specific passage is or, or a collection of verses are to us, there's always something there that we haven't seen before. This is especially true in the Gospel of John. Where John is constantly trying to tell us stories that are working on at least a couple of different levels. I think all of us at one time or another have run into a story that's not just a story, it's an allegory. right? You know those kinds of stories where the characters and the events that are there, they stand for something else, right? for other things, for other events. I mean, I think all of us probably have, have heard some version of the story, that, that fable that we often hear when we're children of the, the tortoise and the hare, you know, and you, you hear the story about the, this rabbit who, who obviously has far more speed than this turtle, and, and somehow they get into this race together, and that the rabbit is so overly confident and distracted but the turtle's just focused and slow and steady, and it's the turtle who ends up winning the race. Right, That's an entertaining story when you hear it for the first time. But as you get older and more experienced, you start to realize, wait a minute. It's not just a story about a couple of animals having this race. Right, There's more going on. The animals aren't just animals. They, they're different kinds of people. And the race isn't just a race. It's, it's life. It's the journey of life. And, and they represent two different ways to try to move through your own life. Right, And, and there's this warning in the story. That if we find ourselves rushing, redlining our way through life, and we think that's going to be the best way to get where we want to go, we need to pay more attention to the turtle who's careful and deliberate and is constantly doing everything he can to move in the right direction. 
We need that kind of focus. We need to be steady as people in our own lives. Okay, so we know how allegories work. We've experienced them before. And that is exactly the kind of approach John takes as he, as he writes this gospel. As, as he tells us the story of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. There is always more going on than we notice right at the beginning. You know, John uses symbols and, and language to talk about something on the surface, but then to cause us, as we reflect on it, to find deeper truths. We've already, in the last couple of weeks, we, we just started this series a couple of weeks ago, we have already run into some of John's favorite words that he uses as symbols and metaphors, right? Light, darkness, grace, truth, life. These are words that are going to keep popping up all along the way. And and when John uses them, he's not simply just telling us the mechanics of what happened. He's trying to get us to reflect on how Jesus' life is still present in our lives. How Jesus is still carrying on his ministry through us. And how these are truths that we don't just read about, but we experience ourselves. When John talks about You know, people opening up their eyes. He's never just talking about them opening up their physical eyes. He's talking about them developing their spiritual vision. And he wants us to seek to do the same thing. When when he mentions that that when Judas goes outside, it's dark. Right? He's not just talking about a lack of sunlight. He's talking about the darkness that's present out in our world that Judas is far from the only one who experiences. Right? He, he wants us to understand there's, there's things that are happening that we notice at first, but then when we spend a little bit more time in reflection, we start to notice there's even more going on. That's happening in this story that we just read together. This story that's really familiar to most of us. And before we run to that second, that second level of, of meaning, right, of what's happening, what do these things represent, I want us to quickly make sure that we understand what's actually happening as John tells it just on the surface. Because even then I find that there are things that I have overlooked at times. To begin with, we need to know what's at stake in a first century wedding when at the banquet they run out of wine, right? What's at stake? Because to us, I think we we kind of start to read those opening verses and we think, okay, they they didn't realize how big of a crowd they were going to have and so they, they run out of wine earlier than they expect to and, you know, that's annoying and it's frustrating But, you know, once you start running out of stuff at a wedding reception, it's just time for people to start heading home. It's it's not that big of a deal. Well, that's that's not at all how wedding banquets worked in the first century, right? In Jesus' time, wedding receptions really were these communal celebrations, these festivities that everybody was invited to, and they were expected to last, not hours, but days, It was an opportunity in a a culture where people, you know, they didn't have weekends the way we do. They, they, They didn't have normal office hours the way we do. They needed to look for ways for them to actually experience moments where they weren't constantly working and trying to produce things. And and it was hard enough for them to actually practice and honor the Sabbath. But they had nothing in comparison to the way you and I often get to take a little bit of time away or go on vacation or any of that. And so weddings became that reason 
They became that place where people who worked hard all the time, it seemed, they finally got to catch their breath and, and they got to enjoy and celebrate and, and remember the, the power of love in a world that often is too filled with hatred and brokenness and darkness and difficulty. Weddings were, were these moments where they found good reason to believe in good things again. And, and the only way for that, that festivity to keep going, the only way for that celebration to, to actually be significant was for the, the family of the groom to prepare and to provide. And in all likelihood, the, the groom's family here was, was preparing for, for months, if not years, to get ready for this particular wedding celebration. They needed to provide enough so that everybody could really enjoy this break from the rest of their normal life. Running out of wine, running out of anything was an insult to the guests. And it was a shameful social failure for the groom's family. Running out of food and drink at this kind of occasion was often looked at as some kind of dark omen that would overshadow this brand new marriage, right? I mean, if you can't even, if you can't even have enough for your wedding reception, what does that say about how much gas you're going to have to make it to the finish line as a couple? People would have been whispering about this for years to come. And so there's all kinds of, of difficulty that this family's going to have to deal with because of what we would call a, a little bit of a, a problem or a little bit of an embarrassment. No, that's not what it is at all. The beginning of, of John chapter 2 is not a, a minor inconvenience. It's a full-blown social disaster. People listening to this story, when John originally told it, when he just kind of tosses in that the wine had run out, they would have immediately been filled with a sense of a major anxiety about what was going to happen next and what needed to happen next. And they would feel this, this just soul deep conviction that somebody needed to do something and they needed to do it quickly because this this is a train wreck now we don't experience that we don't know that but we need to understand that so that we can see why the the way Jesus responds to it matters enough to John to tell this story in his gospel there's more going on here than Jesus being some kind of supernatural catering service and we've got we've to look long enough to notice it. The other thing that I, I think I need to say, because this is probably at least at play for some of us as we listen to this story, is that, that nobody in, in the first century that's listening to, to this unfold would, would be caught up over the fact or, or over the idea that Jesus is creating or producing more wine for people at a party where some of the people have already had too much to drink. Right? That's, that's not something that they would have, have really focused on in this story any more than if you were, and I were hearing a story about someone who's throwing a party and there were some people there who had too much to eat. Right? We, we wouldn't blame the host for for creating and preparing, you know, and serving delicious food, we would feel like, look, if somebody was there and, and they're the ones who are eating and they get to the place of overeating, it's their, their decision. It's, it's their bad choice that got them to that place. It's not, it's not the host. 
right? So we don't want to get distracted by that the way we might be. Jesus is not telling people uh, what they have to eat and drink at this party. He's simply making sure that there's enough. Not enough for just one moment, but enough for, for this community to gather together and, and have days of goodness and joy that, that isn't cut short because the groom's family wasn't able to provide the way they would have wanted to. Right? So on this first level, right, the, the question is, what's just happening in the story? What we find is Jesus making the decision to save a family from being socially humiliated in front of all of their family and their friends and their neighbors. Right? That's what he's doing. Because that's what's at stake. He, he graciously and miraculously creates so much wine, there's no way it's going to run out. Right? It's going to last more than long enough. And in doing so, Jesus turns what would have been a, a regrettable event into an unforgettable one. That's what's going on if you just look at the, the events themselves and that's all you, you catch and all you pay attention to. And frankly, it's important for us to know that. It's important for us to experience that. But there's at the same time quite a bit going on on that deeper second level. Right? The, the metaphor, the symbol, the allegory. So first of all, we need to pay attention to the fact that this is taking place at a wedding banquet. Right? The setting matters. The reason that it matters is any first century Jewish family that, that knew anything about the words of the Old Testament, and especially the prophets, would know that the Messiah is going to do a lot of amazing things to right all the wrongs in our world. But one of the most common images of that, one of the ways the prophets try to get God's people to, to imagine what that's going to be like, is to say that the Messiah is going to throw a banquet on this great day, right? On the Lord's day, the, the day of the Lord when he will show up, God's special servant, and he's going to host this banquet, and there's going to be so much food and drink that the tables are going to creak from the weight. And, and really, most specifically, the prophets often talk about wine never running out, the wine of gladness, the wine of celebration, just flowing and flowing for everyone. Right, that There's this image that anybody who knows the Old Testament would realize, look, the fact that this is taking place at a wedding banquet and the fact that, that Jesus is the one who's able to make sure that there's more than enough for everyone to have so they can enjoy this moment of, of celebration and goodness and hope and light, anyone who was first listening to John tell this story with the Jewish heritage would say, you know what? He might be the Messiah. Because that's what the Messiah is supposed to do. That's the kind of power the Messiah is supposed to have. right? And I think what's so important for us to notice is that then Jesus beginning his ministry at this wedding feast, it's a way to show not just people who've grown up with a sense of what to look for, but for all of us that he's the one we've been waiting for. Whether we know it or not. And then as, as we consider this image of a, of a banquet, of a feast as Christians, right, we, we think of two aspects of feasting that are referenced 
over and over in the New Testament. The first is the Lord's Supper. Right? We, we just celebrated that meal together. And we find then a very powerful connection to the symbolism of wine that never runs out. Because the wine that we partake in together at the Lord's Supper, it's, it doesn't come from some jars that Jesus, you know, used as a place of transformation. The wine that you and I need to never run out comes from Jesus himself. It is his blood, right? It is his lifeblood that gives us, he gives our lives the kind of meaning and purpose we were created to experience. It's the Lord's Supper. We just didn't see it coming. And then in another way, it's also anticipating that great feast that, that we believe is going to take place in heaven for all eternity. And, and I don't know if you notice this, John really wants us to, to pick up on this detail. Did you notice when the wedding takes place? On a third day. That's when the wedding takes place. Well, on a third day from what? Well, that's not really the question that John's wanting you to ask or notice, right? John is connecting this wedding feast to resurrection power. This, this feast is about the Messiah. This feast is about the Lord's Supper. This feast is about that meal that we'll share together forever. And all of it is something that can only take place because of who Jesus is and what he's able to do. Okay, secondly... John hopes that we're going to notice that Jesus creates the wine from water that's placed in jars that were commonly used, he says. He explains this. He doesn't just say they found some jars that were lying around. He says they, they're jars that were commonly used for religious purification rites. Right? The, the fact that these are the jars Jesus used, it, it matters. John wants us to know that Jesus is creating something entirely new out of the old Israelite religious system. And no longer is this just going to be about Israel and the Jews. It's going to be about everyone. This image of wine coming out of those jars, it would be something similar to us finding a way to fill our baptistry with something physical that is obviously uh, about happiness and joy and goodness. You know, I, I think back to the last several weeks ago when, when as a church we were, were trying our best to feed people in our community that were hungry with something called Kids Eat Free. And, you know, we were serving that out of our kitchen. But it would be like if we were able to serve them right out of our baptistry. Right? Nobody would miss the symbolism. They would know that what we're saying is Jesus wants to save our souls, but in the process, Jesus wants to save everybody's soul. Jesus wants to save everybody's life. And whatever we stand in need of, Jesus is the one who can provide us with that goodness. John doesn't want us to miss that, right? Christ isn't just saving the groom from humiliation here. Christ is saving the world from condemnation. Christ is saving the world from whatever it is that's threatening us. Whatever it is that, that's condemning us, whether it's embarrassment and shame or, or whether it's us not having the basic necessities that we need, whatever it is that we're struggling with, Jesus is the one who wants us to understand that God sees it, God cares about it, and God is the one who will provide and take care of us. Sure, the, the old wine runs out because it symbolizes, right, the, the fleeting, empty, Pleasures 
that, that we chase after so much in this life. They, they always run out, but Jesus offers us new wine. Jesus offers us a new life that he wants us to take in. He wants us to drink it in, a better life that is filled with, with a celebration and a joy that never, ever comes to an end. Okay, third. John also hopes we're going to catch the fact that he doesn't refer to this amazing event as a miracle. He calls it a sign. Uh, By the way, Jesus is not going to just perform all kinds of different miracles in the Gospel of John. He is going to perform seven signs. That's it. John's not trying to tell us every miracle that Jesus ever performs. He chooses seven that he wants us to really pay attention to. That that word sign matters. Now, it might not seem like that important of a distinction uh, for us to make, but it is a vital distinction for John because for John, you know, a miracle is, is something that's amazing that takes place. But a sign, it means something amazing when it takes place, when it happens. Right? Miracles are these incredible events, but signs, they point us to the incredible one who's able to perform the miracle in the first place. And what John wants us to actually focus on is not just that, that Jesus is able to do it, but what do we learn about Jesus because he's able to do it? What is this miracle teaching us, right? What's this sign pointing us to? Because if all we do is notice that the actual change of the, of the situation, we may not see the one we need to see more than simply the outcome that captures our imagination. So, what do we learn from this sign? This moment where Jesus is able to, to make sure to provide more than enough for this wedding party, this feast. Well, what John wants us to to catch, and I don't know that I I would ever catch this if John didn't say it. You say, what does this mean? John says, well, you know what? This moment, it it reveals, it gives us a a real glimpse of Jesus' true glory. That's what this, this moment means. It helps us see Jesus' true glory. And you know, it's kind of surprising to me that John would interpret this sign that way because I don't know if you you noticed, but Jesus doesn't work hard to get an audience here. I mean, the only groups of people who even know what he did are the servants uh, at the wedding feast and his disciples. I mean, nobody else knows what's happened. In fact, the, the groom gets the credit for being a genius. For saving the best wine until till last, right? And, and it's not even clear if Mary ever cared enough to go figure out exactly how Jesus did this. You know, she knows him well enough to figure, you know, he's going he's gonna to be able to change the situation. But there's not even like a, an after conversation where, where they explain together what, what's happening and what it means. No, Jesus does this. John says it reveals his glory. And the question is to who? I mean, if you're going to reveal glory, you think you'd gather some people around to, to behold it. But then you start to wonder, well, maybe this wasn't intended for everybody. Maybe this particular kind of glory, it wasn't intended for everybody to see. 
maybe it was intended especially for for Jesus' disciples to see. Maybe it was intended for us to see. And so if we see it, and John helps us see it, if we see it, then what does it mean? What are we supposed to learn about Jesus from the fact that he's he's doing this? And I, I would say this, Christ's true glory in this story is revealed in his willingness to do something that isn't his idea, Something that only he can do without attaching any strings to it or expecting to get any credit for it. That's the glory that you and I get to witness behind the scenes. Right? That's the glory you and I get to witness because John helps us go beneath the surface. Jesus quietly helps someone out of a bad situation because he can. And because helping someone who needs help is always the right thing to do. I mean, at first, it appears like any of us that he's tempted to blame the groom's family for their lack of of planning or preparation, right? He seems irritated that his mother comes and finds him and says, hey, somebody needs to fix this, and I'm pretty sure it needs to be you. Right? There's a part of him that it seems like is saying to her, you know, this is a problem, Mom. It's not my problem. It's somebody else's problem. Let them fix it. But then when she turns to the servants and she says, just do what he says, she knows it's going to work on him. Moms always know when it's going to work on you, right? And so he's thinking about it. And he comes back to this place where he's like, you know what? He's got some doubts about whether or not the groom's family deserved this. But you know what? He's going to do it anyway. Too many times in my life, I just want to confess, I blame people for the fixes that they're in. And I blame them for ever getting in the fix in the first place. I decide that people who are in trouble should have been smart enough not to get in the trouble that they find themselves trapped in. In other words, I guess if I'm going to use John's language here, I come across people who are are struggling, and I blame them for that struggle, and I try to wash my hands of them with water instead of doing my best to turn that water into wine. And in those times that that I actually, for whatever reason, and I'll be blunt, you know, there's many times in my life that I only helped somebody because my mommy told me I had to. Right? But, but, But there's other times people in my life with direct this and, and, and just a sense of, hey, this is what you need to do. I've had people tell me, you've got to, you're, you're the one who can do this. You need to help. And I, I struggle with it because even if I get to the place of, okay, okay I am going to do something, well, then immediately, and I don't, it's not even like I have to decide to do this. My mind just starts creating a list of all the appropriate ways that person needs to receive my help. And if they don't do exactly what I want them to do in response to my help, I'll find a, a polite way to walk away. Right? It's like, I tried to help you, you didn't want to take my help, or you didn't take it in the way I wanted, I'm done. But the truth is, in this, this story, in John's multi-layered story about this wedding banquet, Jesus teaches us a very simple lesson this morning. If we can help someone, we need to help them. If we can help, we need to help. Even if it seems a little bit questionable, 
Even if the person who encourages us to help is kind of annoying us in the moment. Even if it's not our idea in the first place. Even if it doesn't strike us as a great idea after somebody even encourages us. Regardless of how that, that person found themselves in a bad spot, no matter if it's obvious to us that they were irresponsible and exactly how they were irresponsible and how tempted we are to to give them that lecture. Brothers and sisters, Jesus models for us this morning, if we can help, we need to help. And not just barely. Jesus doesn't just barely give them enough to get them through. Right? We, we need to provide people with more than what they absolutely need, whether it's money or it's encouragement or it's prayer or it's a place to stay or it's a shoulder to, to cry on. Whatever it is that somebody stands in need of, we aren't called to be the people who barely give you enough to make it. This story isn't about barely. It's about plenty. It's about so much that it's overflowing that you need baptistries to hold all the wine they're going to drink. That's quite an image in a church of Christ, right? It doesn't make any sense. Not to us. But it's not supposed to make sense. It's supposed to remake the world. If we can help, we need to help. We we need to, to pour into people's lives this overwhelming sense of the goodness and the grace and the hope and the peace and the promise that God makes accessible not only to us but through us God wants to make accessible to every single person who's who's invited to the banquet and let me just tell you everyone's invited to the banquet like we don't do any of this by the way so that we can be recognized or so that we can get credit for it or so that we can claim the, the glory in case you're wondering all the glory already belongs to God we do it because we can We do it because God has given us enough, right? God has richly blessed us so much even now, and I know what we're facing. God has richly blessed us so much even now we can generously bless the people in our lives around us who we know stand in need. You know, I I don't know if you noticed, but Stephen mentioned during the, the welcome, and you know, it's, it's hard, there's a lot of things going on right at the beginning of church, and, and so he mentioned there's a couple of drives going on. One is for, for people who live in Denver, who don't have a, a home, who don't have a, a house to, to stay warm. The other is a sock drive for, for homeless teens right here in Abilene, and I want to show you a quick video here, just a moment, uh, from our own Matt Wallace, who who's doing his best to be Christ to those teens in Denver, and he needs our help. They need our help. And if we can help, we need to. So let's, let's watch that video together now for just a moment. Karen, that's right. Denver's homeless are going to go from finding shade from the heat like they were earlier today to finding shelter from the snow when it rolls in tomorrow, all while living on the streets and trying to stay healthy during a pandemic. Hey, good morning, Southern Hills. This is that time of year where all of our friends, including, well, really myself, we all wake up and freak out that all of a sudden it's cold and it's not summer anymore. Summer will return here in a few days, of course, but right now we have snow still on the ground. And 
So we start thinking about coats and blankets and sleeping bags and how life-saving those are. I uh, completely depleted our supplies this week knowing the snowstorm was coming. And uh, so if you can help with that, it, it can truly save a life on a really cold night. We've got a lot of cold nights coming our way this winter, we know, and uh, could really use your help. So thank you for helping Dry Bones and all the ways that you guys help us. We love you guys. You know, I, I have never, this is intentional, I've never been in a situation where a sleeping bag would save my life. But other people don't have that choice. Right? And, and, and I know we live in a world that has so much need at times that we want to we look away from it. But I want to ask you this morning to find the courage, the same courage Jesus has when Mary comes to him and basically says, look, they, they need something and I know you can help. If we can help, we need to help. And whether it's giving directly to one of these two drives, you have until next Sunday to, to drop something by here, right, in our lobby, or drop something over at our office if it's during the week, whatever it is, find a way to recognize those places and those people in our world that just don't, that it, they're running out. They're running out of supplies, but they're not just running out of physical supplies, they're running out of hope and joy, and goodness, and happiness, all the things that you're supposed to experience at a wedding, right? There's supposed to also be things you experience in your life. And if we can help somebody have that, that's who we want to be. If, if we can help, we need to help. And, and as we leave this moment, as we go out into our everyday lives this week, I just want to encourage you, you're going to come across people who need help. And instead of, of maybe finding some polite way to ignore them or maybe finding, agoni finding yourself agonizing over whether or not you should help them and then worrying about what they're going to do with your help, just help. Just help. You know, I, I know it's difficult, but I really want to encourage everybody in our church family to, to do something compassionate without trying to control the outcome. Just let it go. I'm not saying this is how we always give in every circumstance. I'm not saying there aren't times for us as a church to try to strategize who we're going to help and how we're going to help them and exactly the best way that we can invest in that. That's all still true. But we need moments where, like Jesus, somebody comes to us and says, I'm in trouble or they're in trouble. Could you help? And our answer is yes. Yes. Let me help. If we're controlling the outcome it's really hard for us to be truly compassionate. I want us to, to have that experience, to be those kinds of people in our world. Do something kind with no strings attached. Just trust that when we do good things for people who are imperfect, our God sees it and is able to work more good in their lives than we will ever truly know. This is God's glory revealed not just to us, but among us. We're going to sing together now, and, and as we do, I just hope that you, you ask for God to open your heart up, the eyes of your heart, so that you can truly see what he wants you to see, so that you can truly see who he wants you to see. Let's stand together and sing now.